tonight on Arena. We review Tales from the Holy Well, Damien Dempsey's autobiographical show at the Abbey, and we remember fashion designer Paco Rabam, whose death was announced today. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Ever since Damien Dempsey first released the single Dublin Town back in 1997, he has become one of our best-loved live performers, selling five nights out at Vicker Street every Christmas. Last night, the singer-songwriter took to the stage in a somewhat different context, his new one-man show, which is called Tales from the Holy Well. It opened at the Abbey Theatre and it was directed by Conor McPherson. Chris O'Rourke went along on our behalf and he's with me in, in studio now. Um, it was the Abbey, Chris, who approached Damien Dempsey with this um, statement. Well, this is what we're told. He's, he says that they that they were interested in doing something like Springsteen on Broadway, a mix of songs and life story. Is that what we're getting here? That's pretty much what you're getting here. Essentially, it's an audience with Damien Dempsey. I think, you know, people thought with McPherson's involvement there probably is going to be something like um, Girl from the North Country, again, as a singer-songwriter, working off his back catalogue, but mm. it's it's nothing like that. Yeah, because Girl from the North Country was a, a kind of a fictional play made exactly. around the Dylan exactly. songs. This is Damien Dempsey's, is it his own life story? Essentially. It starts off with... Um, you know, the title comes from Hollywell Crescent, Hollywell Crescent in Donomade, mm. which uh, is where most of his, he spent most of his life. He seems to have grown up originally with his grandparents in Cabra, moved to Hollywell Crescent. And then it's his journey um, through there to becoming the man and the artist he is today. And who's on stage? Is it just him, essentially, or are there others there? It's it's him, but there's four other musicians. Because, again, it's a combination of anecdotes um, which are very well told. He's a natural raconteur, very, very funny. Um, but also interspersed with a number of songs from his back catalogue and some new songs, which are all played live. Um, so, And does uh, he interact with those musicians apart from, obviously, they're part of performing the songs themselves? Do, it, it, the, the speaking, is he speaking directly to the audience or is there any interaction with the, the others on stage in that way? There's no, no conversational reaction with the musicians, but it's all very much directed to the audience. And I think that's probably to do with the fact that it's, it, it straddles an uneasy divide between being a concert and a one-man show. Mm. Um, so I think to ensure that it feels theatrical and not just a concert, McPherson has, has done some very subtle and very smart things. So I think one of them is he doesn't take applause at the end of the songs. He doesn't speak to the audience. He doesn't speak to the band. It's all directed at the audience. Um, Paul Keoghan's Lights Again, they sort of... They're these rectangular frames within a frame. So it's almost as if Dempsey's been framed a certain way and he plays with these. Yeah. Um, Sinead Diskin's back, or sorry, sound design is fantastic. It's like this constant trickle of music, like a stream always in the background. And Celia uh, Graham's costumes, is, is that similarly. The, is, that, is that Sorry, I'll come back to the costumes hmm? thing, but that, that sound design that you're talking about, so is that there when Damien Dempsey is speaking for the most part and then exactly. disappearing during the music bits? Exactly. And it's there, I mean, like there's even an excerpt from Claire de Lune in there because it's all tied all right. in and given a con context to what he's speaking about you know whatever the anecdote might be and it, it, it's you know he talks about Holywell Crescent being built on a holy well and there's a lot of Irish mythological references mm. in his shows so there's a sense of this it's almost like a haunting backdrop 
Yeah, I, I, heard him, I heard him recently, he was interviewed recently by Tommy Tiernan and there was a lot of talk about spirituality yeah. in that interview. Is that present in this show? You know, that's very, very much present in the show. I mean, he talks about having premonitions about his father's death. He talks about his mother and a lot of the women in his family having that gift of, of, of foresight. He talks about um, Druidic Ireland. He talks about the way in which the ancestors and not just the sort of the spiritual ancestors, but even the practical ancestors, the, the legacy of colonialism all impacts on how he is today. Um, but even as even though the spirituality is hugely relevant, and he he explains it, it, it still can feel a little bit pick and mix. Mm. Um, but it's not the whole story, because with with, with Dempsey, like like in one of his songs, teachers, he talks about how. Johnny Cash and Bob Marley were influences, and that's essentially what he is. He's he's the man in black singing redemption songs. And so we get these stories, we get these references to um, spirituality. You've mentioned the references to colonialism and other aspects of Irish history in there as well. And these are all Dempsey's own words. He wrote, at least he's credited as the yes. writer. Yeah. Is there any sign of McPherson's influence there? You know something, I think. McPherson does himself a great disservice in the way in which he underplays his own uh, contribution because he's he's very mindful that Dempsey knows what he's doing, he knows what he wants to say and his job is to support him in saying that. So part of that is getting out of the way but part of that is adding those little theatrical subtleties in terms of pace and in terms of flow in terms of how he'll use the space, how he uses the backdrop to kind of give Dempsey that support in a theatrical context. Yeah, kind of, I mean, it's often the case that um, good direction is is almost invisible. Exactly. Bad direction is yeah, it's very visible. Exactly, yeah. So it's, it's, it's the subtlety of what McPherson does is what really makes, uh, is a big part of the show, is it, it? It really is, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there's, the whole thing congeals very, very well. And it becomes a very enjoyable and entertaining experience. Um and it, it's, again, as I said, it's not just Dempsey, but it's the manner in which the lights, the sound, the costume all come together. You mentioned costume, and I, I spoke over you, as you said, no, the, no. Costume, the costume designer's name. Just who was that uh, again? Saliogo Halloran. So she has this wonderful kind of black outfit with a kind of a design on the the chest. But again, you're, you feel you're looking at Johnny Cash singing Bob Marley songs, if this makes sense. So <laughs> it reinforces these, um, the, the, the image he, he projects, but also recognises the influences, as well as the Irish influence. It all converges on that. And obviously if this was a concert, it would be mostly music with a little bit of chat in, yes. in between. Is the balance totally swung the other way? Is it, you know, a, a little bit, a, a lot of chat with a little bit of music in between? Or what is the balance? I'd say... It's it's more chat than music. There's probably about maybe seven or eight songs, but they're very very well placed, um, and that's what shifts it from a concert. As I said, I mean mm. he starts off singing, and I think that's as much to settle him as to kind of establish a context. But straight away he's into you know this humorous almost um, self deprecation where he admits like you know not everybody gets him where he admits he doesn't write hits. And he gives this wonderful description of how people come to discover him through his fans, which is basically they kind of, you know, rugby tackled him to the ground and forced him to listen to him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And he, he wins you over straight away and he does a lot of that. Yeah, that's and an interesting, it's an interesting um, technique that, isn't it? To, to do just that, that you might begin in saying, well, I don't like, he doesn't write hit songs and, you know, yeah. I'm not going to enjoy this. And then he says, you know, you're probably not going to like this because, so... You, 
does that put you on the back foot? It, you know something? I think it disarms you straight away. Because if you come in and you're not a fan and you just, you're just there for some reason, you just mm. kind of go, hmm, okay, win me over. And within 10 seconds, he's won you over. So he's, he does that incredibly well. And again, that feels very much Dempsey. Yeah. That feels like these are his words. He's talking in his vernacular. And it's, it, you know, even the polished looks raw. If you, if you understand. Yeah, because I'm interested too, and I mean, it's kind of impossible for you to, to answer this one in some ways, but I'm wondering, do you expect that people who go to see the show tonight will get more, will get the same words, essentially? Will it be a re-performance of the same words or is there a kind of a looseness in the delivery and in the way the stories that are told that will allow it to, to shift and change from night to night? I would suspect that it's... It, it, what you saw last night is pretty much what you're going to get for the entire run. Mm. Yet there may be little moments of ad lib. There may be yeah. little, you know, inflections in and around or accentuances in and around. But I think the show is pretty much the show. It, it does feel very solid, very complete. Uh, and it does take you on that journey from this young guy through almost crippling shyness, um, growing up and learning to... Um, have to fend for himself and stand up for himself and finding release and escape in music and then charting with a, a um, an openness and a vulnerability that journey as an artist to finding where he's at and particularly that moment where mm. as, as we said at the beginning he's not everybody's cup of tea but accepting that I'm not everybody's cup of tea but I still want to do this yeah. he, he he's very eloquent um in his directness. What kind of Dublin does he present to us in the, in the show? And what kind of Donna Mead does he present to us as Angie Holywell Crescent? And, and this is an interesting thing. That's a, a very good question because there's a sense in which the north side of Dublin is, I mean, it's, it's mentioned on the posters. Yeah. And, and, and it does, the Dublin wouldn't be to everybody's recognition or to everybody's liking. In so, what there's way? Sen- in what way? so there's a sense in which, at its best, it's almost inhabited by a rogues gallery of Roddy Doyle characters. You know, the kind of like, you know, yeah, we'll battle and borst you and then we'll be best buds kind of thing. So there's this sort of sense of um, the vernacular, the talk, which is very much in evidence, is fine. But there's, it's also in a context of um, Dublin as being a very, the north side of Dublin being as a very hard, very tough place to grow up, almost like it was the Irish trench town. Mm. Um, and a lot of people on the north side are not comfortable with that, you know. And a lot of, of course, people this say, is a north sider telling his version. This is this is what he's his experience. This is are. his experiences of it exactly. Um, but again, it wouldn't resonate with everybody. Uh-huh. And I think that can be one of the things that can maybe alienate some people. Because it's, it's going, that's a Dublin, but not necessarily a Dublin I completely recognise. And it, it runs uh, close to is it two hours, 20 minutes, which is kind of the length of a full-length yeah. full play. Now, you're saying six or seven songs at the most in there. It does does it hold your attention? Is there an interval, for example? I presume there's an interval yeah. in the midst. There is there. Yeah. Oh, no, there is. And it, it, it ran, there's there's even a, a well-worked-in encore. Um, but no, it goes on for two hours, 20 minutes. Um and what's remarkable about it is, is that even though it, it really kind of hits a sort of a stride, you know, it's going to be a song, some mm. stories, a song, some stories, and it doesn't really deviate. It's kind of time. So just at the end of the, the first act, you kind of go, I could do it a, a little bit I'm of pressure now. Yeah. And then when you come back in, the next it flows like that. So it doesn't feel like two hours, 20 minutes. Mm. It feels much shorter. 
You started out by saying, um, Chris, that, you know, it kind of straddles this world between a concert and, and a play in some ways. That's what yeah. it does. Does it does it succeed in doing so? And do you think it's more for a musician, the, mu- the music fans, or more for the theatre fans? I think it's for both. And I think, you, you know, last night was really, you know, remarkable that you how many people from the music industry were there and as well as the theatre mm. community were there and they were both very much enjoying this experience so, and I think it's it, it's a clever move because it is something that can appeal to a theatre audience a musical audience and I think in terms of the concert vibe if you're a fan it's probably going to seem very very low key from what you're used to to these you know Christmas yeah. Vicar Street gigs Um but there's there's moments where you get a little taste of what that might be like. And I think if you, you know, I, I would encourage anyone to go and see it because even if you don't like Damien Dempsey, you might come out a fan or at the very least an admirer. Right, okay. So you're saying it's it's worth it's worth the trip. Very much so. All right. That's uh, Chris O'Rourke speaking to us about Tales from the Holy Well, Damien Dempsey show, which is at the Abbey Theatre. It's there through until the 18th of February. And you can find out full details on abbeytheatre.ie. And since it is all about the singer, we better hear the singer uh, to finish up. This is Sing All Our Cares Away from Damien Dempsey. Mary loves the grouse Hides the bottles round the house She watches chat shows and the soaps Broken hearted but she copes We grow strong Sing all our cares away from Damien Dempsey and as you heard before that Tales from the Holy Well by Damien Dempsey directed by Conor McPherson is at the Abbey Theatre it's there until the 18th of February abbeytheatre.ie for full detail Death was announced today of the fashion designer Paco Rabanne in Brittany he was 88 years old joining me this evening is Robert O'Byrne to talk about Rabanne's uh, career and leading role in the fashion industry uh, Robert maybe first of all you tell us a, a little bit about his, his life he was the son of a Spanish seamstress. How did he end up in Paris? <laughs> well, his his that was his mother. His father was a uh, Republican colonel uh, during the Spanish Civil War who was killed. Um, and his mother had worked as a seamstress for um, Spain's principal designer, Cristobal Balenciaga. And when Balenciaga moved to Paris after the Civil War in 1937 or during the Civil War in 1937, uh, she went too and she took her son with her, which is how he ended up living in Paris to begin with. So is it... Um, is and it is, and is, he obviously, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I, I, I'm wondering, is it safe to say that he learned um, a lot from the mother and from watching what the mother may have been doing? I don't know if he was in the fashion yes, house and, with and, her. And bec- and and she worked obviously for Balenciaga, who was one of the great post-war designers, uh, one of the great contemporary twentieth-century designers, indeed. So w- being around Balenciaga clearly influenced him. And Balenciaga ha- had a very uh, rigorous aesthetic in his clothes, and to some extent, you see that uh, with Paco Rabanne during his his great moments. But what's interesting is that he didn't start in fashion; he actually studied architecture. Um, and for about 10 years, he worked with uh, a key arch- French architect called Auguste Perret, 
who specialized in using reinforced concrete. So there's something very structural. When Paco Rubin yeah. finally comes around to his clothes, he doesn't quite dress models in reinforced concrete, thank goodness. But, you know, he uses very unusual materials in a very um, unexpected way rather than the traditional fabric that yes. one might have expected. We might come back to Coco Chanel and what she thought of the, the reinforced fabrics that he used. But um, <laughs> given that, that, that start out in architecture, when, uh, when yeah. and how did the move come towards fashion? Well, as you've mentioned already, obviously, he, uh, you know, his, his mother worked in fashion. He was around fashion designers. He did do drawings for, the, for other fashion houses like Dior. So eventually, in the mid-60s, in 66, he started his own house. Now, he, he had actually quite a long-winded name. It's Francisco Rabaneda Cuevo. Uh, and that might have been a bit of a mouthful. So that's why he simplified it to Paco mm. Raban. And he launched his label in 1966, which is very much the kind of height of the pop era. And so his clothes very much embodied that as well. Uh, they were they were uh, taking a totally refreshing, different approach to fashion. Uh, you know, you could see the influence, say, of swinging London, but also, as I say, because of his architectural training, uh, his uh, experience with uh, Balenciaga and so on and so forth, he uses materials that you don't normally expect to find in clothes, like metal discs, like paper, like plastic. Uh, rather than the usual materials. Yeah, it was the metal that annoyed Coco Chanel. Uh, yeah, which it annoyed a lot of people, actually. I mean, the, the thing is that he, the traditional fashion houses and the, and the traditional uh, fashion press, obviously, found this very radical and extraordinary. And I think a lot of the time, while it looked great, it wasn't necessarily terribly comfortable to wear either. Um, and I, to some extent, I think that's why Paco Rabanne, as a fashion designer, had a, a, literally a moment, but he didn't have a long career. But the moment peaked, um, as you uh, will, I'm sure, know, with um, Roger Vadim's film in 1968, Barbarella, mm. where he dressed Jane Fonda in the most extraordinary costumes. That, that's those improbable materials and, and indeed you can see the, the I suppose as you say it reached its height when it comes from the costumes for Jane Fonda and Barbarella but they were there from the very start how when when he put his debut collection came out um, the, the 12 these 12 dresses made of very unlikely mm-hmm. or unusual materials was it a real yeah. I mean was it a, a huge moment in the fashion world or were there others doing the same type of thing, what, thing? was he sui generis <laughs> Yeah, no, there weren't other people. There were other people who were experimenting, say, with like mini dresses and so forth, but they weren't necessarily experimenting with the materials. They were using much more traditional fabrics. So what sets him apart is precisely that he was, again, this goes back, so to speak, to his training using reinforced concrete. It was it was taking new materials and seeing what possibilities they possessed when it came to clothing and to fabrics. And I guess we've got to remember, this is the mid-1960s, that that use of unusual Mm. materials, you know, when we get into the latter part of the 20th century is perhaps a a little bit more common. But um, was that the big effect, really, or the big influence that he had within the fashion industry? It was, yeah. I think, you know, it was saying we don't have to stick with cotton and silk or wool or whatever else it is. We can, we can use other materials um, that are, are not commonly employed for, 
to this end and and let's see you know it's a, it, it's an age of experimentation so um, just as you have in music and in art and in so many other fields let's experiment in fashion and see what might be possible um, and of course some experiments work and some don't mm. and I think ultimately uh, Packer Robin's uh, experiment fascinating though it was or is didn't necessarily work and it certainly didn't um, become uh, commonplace because not least as i say because very often yeah. those those particular materials like plastic and metal and so forth you know we have to actually move and sit and lie and whatever else it is in those and they're not very comfortable yeah so are you veering towards coco chanel, coco chanel's dismissal of him as a metal worker <laughs> Uh, I think that's probably a little unfair. You know, I mean, mm. the point is that Coco Chanel, Coco Chanel, by the time she said that, was was an old lady, but she had once been, uh, you know, the great experiment yeah. herself. So I, you know, that's what usually happens: is we we become uh, less inclined to radicalism with age, uh, and she certainly had by that stage, and she was dressing, uh, you know, society ladies in her nice suits, boucle yeah. suits. So she was she was not inclined to dress them in in uh, pieces of of metal um, so that's foil, that, yeah. simply what happened <laughs> um, and, and uh, you or mentioned or anything yeah. else yeah you mentioned you mentioned barbarella and jane fonda there uh, were there yeah. other were there other you know standout celebrity people that he dressed or or other big moments like that barbarella moment <laughs> I'm nothing as big. I mean, a lot of French celebrities wore him at the time. But um, by the way, I, it reminds me, Barbarella, it's, I'm, I'm sure you, you're familiar with it, a wonderful scene in Barbarella in which the Irish actor Milo O'Shea appears playing uh, an instrument called the Orgasmatron uh, and um, with, with Jane Fonda enjoying herself accordingly, uh, it is, which is one of my standout moments from that particular film. <laughs> I think I know the moment you're talking about, right enough. But let us stick <laughs> yeah, she, with. She, she, she seemed to enjoy it herself. <laughs> yeah. um, um, I, I, but I think at that particular moment as well, she may not have been wearing Paco uh, uh, Rabanne or indeed very much yes, else. Yes, I think there was very little design in what she was wearing at that moment in time. In <laughs> fact, um, talk to me a little bit about. I think he did. He did uh, Lady Gaga at the MTV European Music Awards. Did he dress her for that, or was it that her dress kind of picked up on his? <gasps> Style. Well, the point is that the in his style, the point is that he uh, then became involved with a, a large company called Puig, which uh, was involved with both fashion or is still involved with both fashion and fragrances. So, what uh, you know, younger people today will have no idea yeah. who Packer Rabanne necessarily was, or indeed that he had this extraordinary period in the '60s designing these clothes. They will know his fragrances, which continue to be very successful. Um, and so the house of Packer Rabanne has continued uh, with other designers employed to to create collections, but he hasn't had anything to do with yeah. it for a very, very long time. I mean, the scent hadn't, the perfumes have been the the, the, the mainstay of his work. Finally, yeah. he, he was a bit, of a, a bit of an eccentric, some, as in inverted commas, interesting statements in his later life. <laughs> He he had this notion that he'd lived many many times uh, before. That he he apparently said he'd met uh, Christ three times. Um, he had had multiple uh, previous lives. He was a I'm trying to remember. He was a prostitute during the reign of maybe Julius Caesar or some uh, somebody like that. Um, anyway, he seems to have had a busy previous life. And now that he's no longer with us, he's no 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 doubt gone on to the next one. Yeah, and he predicted the end of the world in 1999. 
which I think was Indeed, he, did he not thought true. A, did not a Russian. Go ahead. It, 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 well, a, a, a Soviet, a, a, a Russian satellite was due to fall on Paris in 1999, um, but it didn't happen. No, no indeed. All right. Well, listen, um, very interesting stuff indeed. And I suppose both those <laughs> those metal dresses, but specifically the scents, I suppose, is what most people will think of when they think of Packer Van. Thanks so much for that, Robert. That's Robert O'Byrne helping us remember Packer Obam, whose death was announced today. He was 88 years old. And so here we are in the final half hour of Friday's programme. And that is always time for our album reviews. New releases from Young Fathers, a Scottish trio that seem to defy classification being released releasing their brand of music, kind of spoken word, Sonic Adventures, since 2011. And the critical acclaim certainly has come, even if musical categorisation hasn't. Their latest album is called Heavy Heavy. Next up, if I were to ask you who is the best-selling female artist in country music history, you would probably say Dolly Parton. It is, in fact... Canadian singer and songwriter Shania Twain. It's now 30 years since her eponymous debut album. That record comes despite having only released six albums uh, over those three decades. Number six is released today. It's called Queen of Me. And finally, Irish punk five-piece Mwail. Unusually spelled Mwail with the H. There's a H in the middle between the, the M and the A in brackets. So work out how to say that for yourselves, although it is pronounced simply M-A-I-L, I am told. Uh, their sound is characterised by acerbic guitars, for sure, uncompromising lyrics, as you will hear, dealing with issues of sexuality, sexual violence and mental health. The Derby album is called Attachment Styles. Lauren Murphy, Dave Hanratty have been listening. We'll start with the Scottish trio Young Fathers. Uh, 2014 de- debut album was called Dead Scoop the Mercury Prize. Current album is called Heavy Heavy. And we'll start with uh, what I think is the opening track on the album, Rice. There we go. That's um, yes, it is in fact the opening track, or most of the opening track. Rice from Young Fathers and their new album, which is called Heavy Heavy, and Lauren Murphy and Dave Hanratty, as I said, are reviewers on this Friday evening. I'm really curious as we were listening to that, Dave. I, I was there's quite definite African rhythms in there, um, but it's very, it is very hard to categorise them. I think you you've got loads of possibilities: hip hop, punk gospel, soul, spoken word, classical influences even in there and quite definitely African rhythms. So uh, there's quite a a diverse group of of players here, are there? Uh, There's such a clash of styles with this act, yeah. Like it's a maelstrom, it's an absolute whirlwind and I know that the band themselves have gotten to a stage where I think they're almost like stop trying to even give us a genre. Um, <laughs> for me, I mean, like I guess I could I, I could say electricity or adrenaline could be a genre for this act because that's what I get from them. Uh, this is album number four. Uh, it's a band I find incredibly uh, vital. Uh, I, I discussed them before on Arena, and they're just they give so much to the listener. There's such a joyous rave to what mm. they do, and yeah, I mean, like there's elements of everything. I mean, like like it's 
But it is so forward-thinking and it's so exciting and it's built mm. to be seen in a live setting as well. They're just such an incredible collective. They play off each other beautifully. And I find that the music, even if you've no idea what's going on in the music or the lyrics, it just grabs you and shakes yeah. you up. And, and um, Lauren, Young Fathers, we shouldn't be, I, I think, um, misled by that title. It's it's more diverse than a group, group of young fellas, or young men who have, have children. There's more involved in this band than that. Yeah, I think the name is kind of ironic. Um, yeah. Actually, one of them did become a father in recent years. So um, maybe some of that has made it into this album as well. But um, no, I mean, their influences are as equally diverse as their, their musical mm. influences, I think. I mean... They've. I spoke to Alloy Massaquai a few weeks ago for the Irish Times, and he was talking about how they're influenced by various things they've all gone through since COVID. And and like I said, one of them became a father. One of them went travelling in Africa, and one spent more time with his friends and his family because of the pandemic and all the lockdowns. Mm. So there, there's loads going on. They're all bringing disparate styles and disparate lyrical content as well as musical content to the but, group. But Lauren, quite definitely, that rhythmic thing there is there across a lot of the tracks on the album. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the African thing is definitely high in the mix this time. Um, two of them have African heritage. Alai Masquai was born in Liberia and Kays Bankole has Nigerian heritage. And there's another track called Ululation. That's mm. an amazing song that builds and builds to this really intense climax and is definitely the most outwardly African sounding song here. And it's just such a joy to listen to. Yeah. It's so so vibrant. And there are also quieter moments on the album, a couple of them, and let's have a listen to a bit of one of those called Be Your Lady. That's uh, a minute and a half, in fact, of the track "Be Your Lady," which is just a three-minute track. But uh, Dave Hanrat, you, uh, when you even when you listen to a minute and a half, there, you know that lovely soulful piano music, kind of spoken word feel, and then it becomes a song, and then in comes that bass drum. They they cram a lot into a three-minute song, and we only listen to, as I say, half of the three-minute song there. Yeah, and they turn into the prodigy there, like like halfway mm. through, and it's just so it's so deftly done. I mean, like. It's not jarring to me. I, I think, sure, like it's 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 abrasive in its way and it's challenging perhaps, but there's such a spiritual sense of communion with this act. And like, I'm not a religious person at all, but I do get a sense of the divine from what they do. And I love that they can flip between those styles so so well. It suits them perfectly. And again, like they were on Jules Holland a few years ago. It took them ages to even get there. And it was an incredible performance that just stops you in your tracks. They've spoken about being mm. too rock for hip-hop radio and too hip-hop for rock radio. And they're kind of somewhere in the middle. And they are critically acclaimed. They do have a following. But I, I can understand why they're not even a, a bigger band. And I think of mm. UK acts like the Sadly Departed Wild Beasts. I think of the Horrors. And I put Young Fathers up there with them as well. They're some of the most interesting, creative, daring music I've heard in the last 10, 15 oh, years. Yeah, I, and we're blessed to listen to this. Oh, and there you go. That sounds like a very positive re- review to me. Uh, overall from you, uh, Lauren, and they're playing the Olympia, uh, the Olympia on March the 1st. Will you be there as you give me your stars and final judgment? 
I definitely will. I haven't actually seen them live before, but by all accounts, that's where to to really fully mm. experience them. Um, I really like this album. I took a good few listens to get on board with it, to get on its level, I think, because there's so much going on. But I, I really came round and I would give it four out of five. Four out of five from you and, and, and hoping to be there on March the 1st. I think you, you probably, probably already have the tickets, Dave, have you, for March the 1st? <laughs> uh, yeah, and I have seen them live before and it's absolutely fantastic. They're one of the best live acts I've ever seen. It's an easy four out of five. An easy four out of five from you. Okay, a very positive um, start then for Heavy Heavy from Young Fathers. Let us move on to Shania Twain. You know, I, I let her introduce herself with, again, I think this is the opening track on the album. Pretty certain it is. Yes, it is. I left my heart and water in a hole somewhere in small town Ohio. Headed out west to Arizona because the east coast when there's new cool, cool, cool. I got a fast car with the nineties on, not a soul on the road, but the road is home. Smiles for miles, all upon my face. Ah, yeah, no, who's not smiling as they listen to Shania Twain telling you to up, giddy, up, giddy, up, 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 or whatever the particular combination of up and giddy is in that. Um, you know, this is the woman who gave us titles like, man, I feel like a woman. That doesn't impress me much. Woman in me needs the man in you. And whose bed have your boots been under? And, and I'm not, I haven't, haven't even said you're still the one yet. Uh, Lauren, this is a woman who knows how to write a song. And it's kind of surprising to think, that it's only what is this is her sixth album over a, thir- a three a th- well, a three decade career. Yeah, she's done fairly well for herself, hasn't she? I know. <laughs> I know. One of those albums was, in fairness, one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Nineteen ninety seven's coming over, but yeah, she's kind of changing tack a little bit in this album. I think both musically and lyrically. I don't know if it's even accurate to describe her as an out-and-out country artist these days actually because that song Giddy Up maybe there's another two or three songs on the album that are you could class as country or country pop but it's mostly a bland enough pop album I found there isn't that much that will put a smile on your face in, even in the way that that song would to be honest yeah I have to admit I smiled broadly when Giddy Up was playing which is the first track on the album I wasn't smiling further down, I <laughs> yeah. have to say. Kinda, the sheen had, had, had gone off it for me. Uh, how was it for you, uh, Dave? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think Shania Twain deserves an awful lot of respect. She broke the mould in lots of respects in, yeah. in terms of the country and pop crossover. She's inspired so many artists and she deserves her flowers. And of course, she's go- gone through, you know, some 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 issues. Like she's she, she had some vocal rehab issues and surgery to try and even get back to being a professional singer. It looked like the career might be over. So the very fact that she's still out there and still performing is a great thing. However, this is just, I mean... This could be anyone's basic pop album from 2011. Like, she's chasing trends that have gone out of date a long time ago, while also trying to kind of, I guess, crib from some of the newer artists. There's Shades of the Weekend on here, Shades of Harry Styles, who she's good friends with. Yeah. And he himself has said she's a big inspiration. Uh, there's, you know, there's Bruno Mars. It's it's just very, very by the numbers. Yeah, well, here's a track called Brand New. And I don't think she was being ironic when she said Brand New. Hey, hello, I just said goodbye, and you didn't care enough to ask me why. Just wanted to give you a little favour of brand new, although I do like Lauren that... (laughs) 
that opening line of "Hey, hello," I just said goodbye. Um, but it, it, there is a little bit of it feels a little bit joining the dots here, does it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's pop by numbers, like Dave said, and it is dated to me as well. I mean, there is this theme running through the song or running through the album, sorry, as Mm. you might have guessed from the title, Queen of Me. It's all about empowerment and loving yourself. And I'm all for those themes, but it just seems a little regressive. It's kind of spoon feeding your audience Mm. a little bit. And Destiny's Child were doing it, you know, 15 years ago with, with independent women. It just kind of seems like she's missed the boat a little bit by... 10 or 15 years. Although there is an explicit track on the album which kind of surprised me which is called Pretty Liar on on the album cover but the word pretty is not what we hear uh, in the song itself. You don't have to work, have to work too hard to she work out what the double syllable yeah. is. I mean, that's the thing. Like that, That's such a telltale sign though of we're being edgy now in air quotes. You know, like Taylor Swift mm. does this all the time. Every now and then she'll say something a bit provocative. And, you know, I guess maybe you're straddling a fan base that want the same but different and don't want to be challenged too much. Right. And this exists as like, a, it's a piece of content and then she can go on tour. She's doing like a 72 world date world tour, including coming to Ireland a couple of times. And again, maybe that's where it's at, but it's just so done. Like it's, ah, right. it sounds cheap. It sounds old. It doesn't sound fresh at all. And, and you've acknowledged that you know, in the past, that was not the case with Shania Twain. I don't think she's going to be at the top of your star listing this time, however, Dave. It's a, a generous two out of five. A generous two out of five. <laughs> Are you in similar parsimonious mood, Lauren? I'll be slightly more generous with a tree, but yeah, I am just because I'm feeling particularly generous tonight. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Queen of Me from Shania Twain. And finally then, let's move on to uh, that group, as I said. It's simply pronounced male. Uh, it has that peculiar spelling with the H in brackets after the letter M. Uh, who are we talking about when we talk about male, Lauren? They're an Irish band. They're actually split between Dublin, London and Bristol, um, a five piece. And you might have heard of one of them. The drummer, Constance Keane, mm. uh, is also known as the solo artist Fears, who released a very good album last year. Um, they're a band that are very, as you said at the start, uh, uncompromising in terms of their lyrics and their music. Um, they're, I, I think the press release that comes with this album says something like the theory of attachment styles as an overarching theme, which is a theory that looks at the impact our interfamilial relationships and society have on how we relate to each other. So, you know, that's the sort of thing you're dealing with. You think it's going to be, oh, are these guys taking themselves a bit too seriously? I want an album, not a thesis sort of thing. Mm. But it actually is pretty entertaining and it does thought provoke more than I yeah, expected it to. Yeah, I suppose when you, when you read releases like that, it kind of is just yeah. a little. Uh, off-putting. <laughs> However, the the tracks and the and the the lyrics and the songs are much more direct than that kind of um, academic type of speak. There's a track called "Asking for It," and it's hardly surprising to know um, that this has a lot of explicit detail within it and some language within it too. So be warned of that before we listen to "Will" and "Asking for It." <laughs> That's a wall of sound for sure, that section from Asking For It from Whale and the new album Attachment Styles. Um, it, it is kind of on the nose in, in many places, Dave. Uh, is it as much a spoken word album? I know that's kind of old style punk, but 
there's a lot of spoken word feel of it, even in the themes that are covered in the across the record. Yeah, I mean, like Roshi Nagarald, who's the singer there, the style of vocals may great for some. I mean, there's definitely like kind of a eye rolling, you know, unimpressed deadpan delivery there. But I think it actually contrasts really, really well with the huge, huge barrage of noise mm. that you're hearing there, which I think is incredible. Like the first, like that's a really provocative track by design. Should be said as well that you know when they play that song live, they give a trigger warning to the crowd because yeah. this is an act. It, it, fiercely feminist punk band that is trying to, I guess, create uh, safe spaces, uh, be more inclusive for the marginalised, uh, be a voice for for queer youth and, you know, kind of put two fingers up to people who have been uh, spat up and chewed out by by people who have not, you know, been fair to them, essentially. And I think that's, that's totally fair. They're a punk band and they're extremely good at what they do in that regard. Musically, this is terroring. I think, I think it's so large and huge. Jamie Highland, who worked on Gilliband's first record, she is responsible for some of the huge noises that you're hearing here. And from the very off, mm. this is the first track on the record. I was hooked on this immediately. It's so powerful. I mean, it, it's an interesting, hell, yeah. hell of a contrast to Shania Twain, yeah. but it's an incredible companion piece to the Young Fathers album as well. I think there really is life in this. And, and to what extent for you, Lauren, does, you know, the, the provocation is one thing, but it still has to work as a, an album, a music album, as well as a spoken word album, does does it, does it have enough in it for you? Yeah, in fact, I, I think the musical element I enjoyed even more than the lyrics. And I, I did find the lyrics really thought provoking, as I said. But yeah, I love that sort of squally guitars, the atonal riffs and really, you know, offbeat drum ba- drum patterns. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. And there are parallels with like Gilliband. Dave mentioned there, they've toured with Gilliband last year as well. Um, so there are parallels and I guess they're as equally Marmite as Gilliband mm. are to some people. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I really like the musical element, yeah. All right, I'm going to play a little bit of a track called Nice Guys. flavour there of Nice Guys from Mail and their new album which is called Attachment Styles. Does it work overall for you Dave? Um, I think yourself and Lauren are, are quite positive on this one as well. Yeah no it definitely does. I mean look there's a ton of repetition here it is designed to piss people off but I think it should be I think it's got an awful lot of righteous fury uh, baked within it and that should be the case. I think that they're important voices yeah. they're very very exciting musicians and I think as a construct, as a narrative it absolutely works. It's ten tracks it, it's going to be a case of somebody will listen to this and think, and think it's the best thing they've heard. Someone will think it's just two washing machines having a fight with each other. I, I think this is really, really, really strong work. And stars? Uh, three and a half bordering on a four. It's, it's very good. Check three it out. Three and a half heading to four, two for each of the washing machines. Sure. Game there. <laughs> and what are you saying, Lauren? Yeah, I really like the two. I know it could come across as a bit yeah. try hard maybe to some, but it felt sincere and, and unapologetic, which is very punk in its ethos. So uh, I really liked it. I'd give it a four out of five. All right, very solid double four then for attachment styles from male from both Lauren and Dave, as Young Fathers doing similarly well for Heavy Heavy and Queen of Me from Shania Twain in the middle. Maybe not in the same category uh, this evening at any rate. Lauren Murphy and Dave Hanratty are reviewers, but not, and that is it for Friday's programme here on Arena. Uh, Polish Shields, Amandine Passo-Devine and Leah Murphy were the researchers. Michelle Gibson was the 
the broadcast coordinator Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound this evening and the programme was produced by Olin McGowan. We'll be back with you here on Radio 1, 7 o'clock on Monday and with you as usual on RT Lyric FM on Sunday afternoon between 1 and 4. Join me for that if you have the time.